You're dismissed. Uh, our tag is in question. Uh, our toddler is question. We're also learning tag is in question. Uh, question 61. What is forbidden in the third commandment? The answer is the third commandment forbids all profaning and abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. Some of y'all are. Didn't know if you were supposed to read that with me. Some of you have been here a lot. You know you're supposed to read it with me, but that's okay. Um, and so that's our, our catechism question. You can use the digital hymnal. You got your piece of paper uh, when you walked in. In the back, it has the website that you can go to to get the digital hymnal. You can just go to the EvansvilleChurch.com website. It's right there. Uh, one of the big banners is on the front of the page. You can click on that, and you can use that digital hymnal to see all the songs that we do every week, or what we're doing this week, the uh, responsive readings, the uh, sermon notes. And also, uh, you can see the digital hymnal, um, the, uh, the catechism question. So please use that, the helpful guide in, in worship. Our um, text this morning, we're back in the book of Luke, Luke uh, chapter 10, kind of following up from Ryan Taylor's sermon from two weeks ago. And Jesus is kind of going into a new section of teaching, and a lawyer comes to him. So Luke chapter 10 starting in verse 25. I'm going to read this, and then I will pray. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responded, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put, on, put him on his animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him when I come back. I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spent. You spend. 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. Let's pray. So Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this, this episode in the life of Christ. May, Lord, may we learn from it. May you convict us, Lord. May you show us what we need to know, not only about our sins, but also about you, Lord. For some of us, may you save us through this text. For some of us, may you draw us near to yourself. For some of us, may you convict us of our sins, and it would lead to repentance and trust and faith. May you use this, Lord, to spur us on to gospel ministry and to evangelism and sharing the gospel to those in need of it. Lord, we pray for um, just other churches in the area, Lord. Um, Mount Vernon Baptist Church, we pray for them. Lord, I pray for 
for the, the Pastor Josh, to pray that you would use him to, to preach faithfully your word. I pray for that church. Well, they've had some, some struggles over the last decade, Lord, and, but I pray that you would cause revival in that church, that people would see their responsibility to share the gospel with those who do not have it. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we pray for those who are not with us, or traveling purposes, or sick, or uh, dealing with, with issues, Lord, but I pray that you would watch over them, I pray that you would heal them, I pray that you would give them strength, give them encouragement this day, in Jesus' name, amen. Pretty sure most of y'all are pretty familiar with this story, this parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, the Good Samaritan is that is kind of lingo that is that we use in our culture to talk about someone who does good deeds for other people. And it comes from this story. And uh, when I was thinking about this, I kept on seeing that Sesame Street song. Um, who are the people in my neighborhood? You know the song, oh, who are the people in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood? Oh, who are the people in your neighborhood, the people that you meet each day? And he talks about, Bob from Sesame Street, he did this song in the 70s, 1970. He would have different uh, uh, Muppets come out dressed up like a different uh, professional, right? It'd be like a painter or a mailman or a mailwoman or uh, maybe a, a doctor or a nurse. Um, and they would represent different people in your neighborhood, that there's people in everyone's neighborhood that do different things. And, and, uh, and the, 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 the kind of project of a neighbor is to get to know your neighbors. Which is interesting because if you're, if you're a Seinfeld fan, you know from the last episode of Seinfeld, the final episode, why they were put in jail, right? Because they were bad neighbors. I mean, that was basically the, the gym. They put them in jail for one year for basically being bad people who were bad neighbors. And the, 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 the episode goes that they had to, cra not crash land, but they were on their way to Paris. And they had to emergency land in this town in New Hampshire, I believe, in New England. And there was a man who was being carjacked. And they filmed him and made fun of him and laughed at him. So they were arrested on Good Samaritan Law, on a Good Samaritan Law in this town. They didn't help someone in need like they were supposed to. Instead, they just sat back and mocked him and, and videotaped him. And so the whole defense, the lawyer who uh, kind of was the prosecutor uh, of, the, of the three characters from Seinfeld, um, they had all these people from, their, from, the, from the show, right? You had Bubble Boy, you had the Soup Nazi, you had Babu at his restaurant. You had all these people from Seinfeld that basically presented testimony how bad they were and how bad neighborly they were, right? Now, that's basically kind of how they, they, the judge sentenced them to one year in prison for being bad neighbors. And so we get this Good Samaritan, right? The Good Samaritan Law. I think there may be some cities and towns in the United States that have Good Samaritan Laws. That if someone's in need, it's your responsibility as a citizen to help them, to intervene. So Jesus, in this Luke chapter 10, verse 25, he kind of transitions into a new section. Luke kind of transitions here and, and talks about not only about what does it mean to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and also how to love your neighbor as yourself. This particular episode is about how to love your neighbor. The next section, Martha and Mary, talks about how to love God. So you have this lawyer. And he comes to Jesus, uh, he's maybe a scribe, a religious leader, he's an intellectual, he is a, someone who's an expert of the law. 
And he comes to Jesus. I don't know how he knew about Jesus. I mean, Jesus, again, pretty popular, controversial figure. He uh, was hated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and so this scribe or this lawyer wants to ask Jesus a question. And Luke says that his intention was to test Jesus. Now, do we read into that as someone that, that this guy was trying to do something, trying to disrespect Jesus? He was trying to put Jesus uh, and, and try to shame him or, or, or trick him? Or was his intentions actually pure and good? So he, he asked Jesus this question. He says, how can someone obtain eternal life? Is he trying to provoke Jesus into a deep religious discussion? Is he like a seminary student who wants to ask their professor about some crazy question to stump him or to... When I was a seminary student at Southern, I became really good at provoking my father into arguments and discussions that led to arguments. Um, because me and my dad had different views on end times, and so I'd always, like, poke him, right? And I was like, ah, I learned something new in seminary, so I'd test him, right? I was like, hey, did you think about this? And I would try to almost shame my dad, right? And, and, and I think that maybe this lawyer was kind of doing a similar thing. He wants to test Jesus, provoke an argument or a debate. So, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he asked Jesus this question, maybe to obtain assurance about eternal life. What is eternal life? It's life with God after death. The immortality of the soul. Genesis 2, 7 through 9, when Adam, and, when Adam was placed in the garden, God told him that he, could, he put the man in the garden and he gave him and he put the tree of life in the midst of the garden, right? And God told the man, Adam, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. And the Lord commanded Adam, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, including the tree of life. But you can't eat of the tree of good and evil, or you shall surely die. So Adam was placed in the garden with the tree of life. He was given freedom to eat of the tree of life. And we even know that the tree of life, later on, it actually does produce life. The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, now lest to reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is chapter 3, verse 22 of Genesis. That basically, they, they kicked them out of the Garden of Eden because there was a, there was, if they continued to eat of the tree of life, they would live forever in a, in, in a state of sin. And so he kicks them out of the garden. So eating of the tree of life produced life. And so there is an understanding uh, of, amongst these uh, experts of the law that the soul was immoral. Jews throughout their history up to that point believed in the immortality of the soul. This was not a debate about the existence of life after death, but rather how he could obtain or inherit eternal life. Ecclesiastes 3.11, uh, the, the writer says, He has put eternity into man's hearts. That the soul or man is created to live and that the soul is immortal. And so the question of eternal life, that how does one et obtain eternal life? Even Job 19.26 speaks of the eternal life. He says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That, that when you live and then you die, it doesn't let you go to nothing, that there is something after death. Even David, talking about his child that died and, 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 and because of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, he says... But now he is dead, why shall I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David is speaking of the life after death. 
The soul is immortal. That eternal life is something. And though this lawyer is familiar with these passages, he's familiar with the immortality of the soul, and he's wondering how do you obtain or inherit eternal life. He's seeking assurance, and he has rationalized that Jesus is the right person to ask such an important question. The question of eternal life is essential to you in I's existence. How do you obtain eternal life? What is life after death? Some more recent have answered the question by assuming that there is no such thing as an actual eternal life. You were born from nothing, you will return to nothing. Therefore, eternal life, or living on beyond death, is an existential reality in the people you impact or the accomplishments that you have made during your life. Basically meaning that today the world in basically interprets eternal life as there isn't actually life after death. What is eternal life is what you accomplish in the here and now, and if that actually exists past your death. Basically, family and loved ones, right? You heard people say, they live within your heart, right? What they're saying is, is that people live beyond death in your heart. People don't really die. They live within you, right? They stay with you. You hear this language when people talk about loved ones who have passed away. Or even living a legacy. They live on through their art, right? Elvis didn't really die. He lives on through his music. That's how people today interpret eternal life. Changing the world, leaving your mark. Your eternal life, or your, how you will, you will last past your death, is based on what you accomplish in the world. If you change the world, and people remember you past your death. How is eternal life obtained? This is a quote from, uh, from someone who believes that eternal life is based on what you do here in this world. He said, immortality is not achieved through snarky tweets or passing cute cat pictures or even holding a news reading job for years with a media corporation on TV. It's achieved by continually and consistently giving great value to the world around you. You improve people's lives by giving them greater choice. Just quit listening so much to the world around you and start listening to your own heart. The critical snipers are dying bit by bit, day by day. They will never be known for anything. The few who know their bliss and follow their dreams, creating a lifetime of good, valuable work, these are the ones who live forever. I think a lot of people believe that. That's how people define eternal life. How do you get assurance that you will live on? It's what you do in the here and now. How you leave your mark. How you love the people that are in your life. It sounds good, but what it really is is an existential crisis. How do I know my impact, my work, my contributions has any meaning? What, how do I know that I'm actually am leaving a mark? How do I know that I'm actually changing the world? How do I know if I'm actually influencing anything? How do I know that people will actually remember me? Past my death. For the lawyer, he wants confirmation and assurance of his own inheritance to eternal life. What has been written in the law, Jesus says. How do you read it? How do you understand God's word? How do you understand the law? The lawyer is an expert of the law. Jesus, reaffirming his own commitment to the law, responds to the lawyer's question by pointing him to the meaning of the law. Jesus says in Matthew 5, he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law, to accomplish the law. Jesus is not an enemy of the law. He asked the lawyer to look to the law for your answer. And what does the lawyer say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and might, and your neighbor as yourself. 
The lawyer correctly summarizes the law. It's a perfect answer. If this was a test on a, on a, on a, on a, on a, if there was an exam and this was the question and this was his answer, he would have gotten the question right. This was the right answer to Jesus' question. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's in the law. Jesus says to him, you answered correctly, do this and you will live. You have eternal life by obeying every letter of the law without failure. There's the catch. The problem is, is that you have to obey loving your God with your heart, soul, mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself perfectly. Perfectly loving others, perfectly loving God. You have eternal life by obeying every letter of the law without failure. Leviticus 18.5, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. We know from Genesis 3, Adam failed to obey God's law perfectly, and he was judged accordingly. The lawyer has an issue. Everyone has an issue. There's no way you can go and live as Jesus says. Go and obey and live your life. The law does not give life, but rather stands as an accuser. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since there, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. <laughs> so the law doesn't give life, it accuses you of sin. Genesis 3.10, Or all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed by everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 2.23, you who boast of the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Even those who think they obey the law are actually breakers of the law. Paul continues, he says, who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. Verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcises the matter of the heart. This lawyer is, looks good on the outside. He's been circumcised. He's an expert of the law. But he is just as guilty as the Gentiles. His circumcision is simply an external thing and not an inward thing of the heart. The man is in a hopeless situation. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Romans 6.23, the waste of sin is death. So he is a lawbreaker. Even if you break it once, he's a lawbreaker. So there is no hope for him in the law. His religious expertise won't provide him eternal life. There are no set rules to follow that will merit eternal life. Oh, I don't cuss. I don't drink or do drugs. I don't have premarital sex. I don't get a tattoo. I don't watch any of our movies. I don't listen to secular music. Whatever, 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 those things will not inherit you with your eternal life. <coughs> this is a, uh, a quote. This is from Archbishop Fulton Sheen in the National Prayer Breakfast in 1979. This was when Jimmy Carter was president, and he, he so he did that. He did like the prayer for the National Breakfast, and he gets up to speak and he says, "Mr. President, Miss Carter, Jimmy Carter's wife, and fellow sinners." It was shocking. Like people were like, "What did he just say?" But what he's saying is, is like we're all fellow sinners. The president, first lady, senators, congressmen. He continues, he said, We Americans are not very much giving to the thought of sin. We make a mistake as one public official admitted, or else we excuse our so-called antisocial behavior because we were fed grade B milk as children. And because of insufficient playgrounds, because we were loved too much by a mother or too little by a father, 
Carl Mingan, the distinguished psychiatrist, has written a book entitled Whatever Became of Sin. The clergy dropped sin unless they offered their congregation. Jurists then picked it up and turned sin into crime. And finally, psychiatrists converted it into a complex. The result is that no one is a sinner. The problem is, is that we are justifying, as we learn a little bit later, that we are justifying ourselves by the law, but the law does not justify you, it only accuses you. And the only thing that reunites everyone in this world is that, number one, we're created by God, but also we are sinners. Fellow sinners. The lawyer, not sensing his hopelessness, looks to justify himself. He doesn't cry out for mercy like the son of David. Like when he, like the, like the blind man who cried out, Son of David, have mercy. He, the lawyer doesn't do that here. He doesn't cry out, What must we do to be saved? Like the, the folks at the day of Pentecost. Instead, self righteousness takes over. He starts to boast in the law, boast in, in his morality, in his positive contributions. We all have this, uh, this tendency to boast in our morality or in our sacrifices or in our common good or our actions that have zero negative effects. How I was not like those people. But a zeal for morality is not good enough. A zeal for being a good person is not good enough. A zeal for justice is not good enough. A zeal for perfection is not good enough. A zeal for anything that entails about things that we do is not good enough to obtain eternal life. We stand in the same position as a lawyer here asking how can we inherit eternal life and we have no hope in ourselves. We have no hope. But the problem is, is that the lawyer doesn't ask God how he can be saved, does he? He tries to justify himself. Who are my neighbors? That's point number two. Who is my neighbor? Seeking to clarify his own fulfillment of the law by loving those he believed were his neighbors, basically confined to the nation of Israel, people that are like me who are Jewish, Samaritans, Gentiles, low lives were outside the definition of neighbor, tax collectors, prostitutes. What did Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman? She even says in John 4 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of a Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. The Jews do not consider Samaritans their neighbor. John 7, 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Those who are sinners, who are prostitutes, those were not their neighbors. Matthew 8, 11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors are not your neighbor. This is how this lawyer thought his neighbors were. And so he wanted to justify himself, like, well, those are obviously not my neighbors. My neighbors are people like me, and I love those people perfectly. So Jesus answers his question with a parable. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell amongst some robbers. He's stripped. He's assaulted. He's been left half dead. All of his possessions most likely were taken from him. That's what robbers do, right? They take what is not theirs. The, the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was, was 15 miles. And Jerusalem is on a, high, on a higher elevation than Jericho. Jericho is about 3,500 uh, uh, 3,500 feet below elevation from Jerusalem. So it was a steep journey, rocky journey. There's caves and places to hide on this journey. 
So he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, steep in a dangerous journey, caves and rock formations. This man's situation was desperate. He is then attacked, he is then left half dead, a lonely road in critical condition, beaten in pain, left to die alone. Maybe he's thinking of his family if he has children or a wife. Praying for God's help. I know this is not in the text, but you almost can like put yourself in that situation and go, if I was in that situation and I was left half dead, I'm probably thinking of my children and my wife or my husband or my, I'm praying to God that he would help me. So a certain priest was going down the road. The priest saw him. A man of the cloth, a religious man, appears. You would think this would be the perfect person to help the man who was beaten, right? A man of God. A servant of God. A virtuous man has come upon this man. He of all people will help him. I mean, I was reading the, the Thomas and the train, uh, Thomas and the, uh, uh, taken, what, the Thomas, the, the, the steamboat, whatever the book is called, or the story is called, I can't remember all the name right now. Uh, and my grandpa's going to kill me for it because he's a train guy. Um, but anyways, there's a book about search and rescue, right? That basically, if you're thinking of the search and rescue helicopter who's looking for a person in need, this is the kind of guy that you would want. You would want the guy from the church or from the, the, from the religious establishment. Yet he passes on the other side. Someone who was expected to help but did not. Too busy fearful, and different to the needs of the, the unfortunate. Maybe the beaten man deserved it, right? The judgment of God on his sins. But yet he has no pity on this half-dead man, desperately in pain. We don't know if he was making noise. We don't know if he's crying out for help. But this priest passes by. A Levite comes to the place. He sees the man who is half-dead. He's similar to the priest, educated man of the law, who knew the passages I had from, from, from the Old Testament about showing mercy to those in need. They were commanded by God in the Old Testament to show mercy to those in need, but yet he passes on the other side. Yet he, like the priest, maybe justifies the mission of help for reasons that made sense to him. Maybe he made sense to his colleagues as well that you don't help a person like that. It's just that's not what something you're supposed to do. William Taylor suggested that these two men would have acted differently in the Bible, if the Bible or Jewish law contained a law that said, If thou shalt see a man lying half dead upon the highway, thou shalt not pass by him un unheeded. And to, like, maybe there's an exact law that said do this. Maybe they would have helped. Maybe there's such strict adherence of the law. They're, they're, they're not lawbreakers. But yet they were done it without compassion and attempted to find a loophole in their fancy scholarly debating and statistical uh, maneuvering that they would go, well, you, you're supposed to help a neighbor in need, but it depends on who the neighbor is. It depends on what side of the road he's on. It depends on how much he's been beaten. Like, that's not in the law. So therefore, if we didn't help him, we're really, really not breaking the law. That's what something they would probably, probably do. Yet these two in that society, and maybe ours as well, would have been the ones that we would assume would help the man, but they merely saw him for a moment and kept walking. And I think Jesus wants us to get that point, that he uses these two examples to say, most of the time we would assume those were the ones that would help him, but they didn't help. The point Jesus is making here is despite their knowledge of God's law, their position and status in the Jewish religious system, and their nationality as well, both the Levite and the priest prove themselves unqualified for eternal life. They prove that they do not follow the law. 
that they do not love their neighbor as themselves. They fail to love their neighbor, they fail to go and live likewise. Then a certain Samaritan who was traveling went to him and saw him. He had compassion on him. The unlikely character is the Samaritan man. You know your biblical history that Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They were enemies. After the Assyrian Empire took over the northern kingdom, some of the Jews were left behind. They were not deported along with others. The Gentile foreigners built the temple in Ezra. Those Samaritans offered to help, and they rejected their help. It was known that Jews called Samaritans the stupid people living in Shechem. That's what they called them. Stupid little people. Jesus was called a Samaritan in John 8, 48. That was not a positive title to be called a Samaritan. And Jesus was called a Samaritan. That was what they used to, to poke fun at him or to mock him, was to call him a Samaritan. These people hated one another. This is the Hatfields and McCoys, man. A Jew lays helpless and half-dead in a barren place. Expectations would be that the Samaritan would potentially end his life. Kick him over the cliff. Not helpful. Yet he went to him, saw him, and had compassion on him. He had sympathy. He had love for him when the priest and the Levite only offered indifference, putting himself as well in danger as he delayed to help this man. And he binds his wounds. He binds his trauma. Where we get for the word for a Greek for wounds is the word we get trauma. He bounded his trauma. He bounded his wounds. He covered him, used his own supplies, most likely, to help him, poured oil and wine, sanitized the wounds, relieving the pain. He sent him on his own animal and walked. On this treacherous journey, he sacrificed his own supplies, he let the man lay on his animal, and then he walked down the steep journey, most likely could also be robbed. Stays with him all night for the stranger, this enemy of his race, who knows what appointments were dropped to help this man? Who knows the impact this love made on his finances? We have no idea if he's a rich man. This may be his entire fortune for all we know. Yet he has compassion and love for this guy. He says he even stays to the next day, gives the man, the innkeeper, two denarii, which is a day's wages. That's two days' wages that he gives the innkeeper to take care of this man. That's up to two months of board for the man at the end. He's generous, he's compassionate. He says to the innkeeper, take care of him, and whatever more you may spend, I will return and repay you. Basically, he gives the innkeeper a blank check. If whatever the bill is, I got it. I'll come back and pay it. Whatever is required, I will pay it. No haggling over price, he will pay it. The limitless love being expressed by the Samaritan is completely unexpected. The kind of love that the law requires to inherit eternal life. The lawyer is empty of all this love. What Jesus was asking here was impossible. Uh, recent, this is, a, this is kind of, I want to talk a little bit about the culture we live in today. This is a, a recent research by political scientists at Vanderbilt University. They said that, talking about Republicans and Democrats, and this is a political system we have right now, says they, that the partisans are willing to explicitly state that members of the opposing party are like animals that they lack essential human traits. That in sense, in the world today, and especially in America, there's an increasing uh, uh, view that someone who disagrees with you is almost 
you, you basically dehumanize them. You say that they cannot be a good and, 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 and good citizen because of what their, their views are politically. So in a, in a way, the, what we see here in the parable of the Jews and the, and the, uh, the Samaritans is very similar to our own culture. This animosity, this hatred. Certain groups of people believe in things that infuriate us. And truthfully, we struggle to love them the way God's law requires us to love them. Therefore, we, like the lawyer, are in a hopeless situation. Eternal life is not available to us because we cannot perfectly follow God's law. So Jesus, at the end of this episode, point number three, who is the one who acts neighborly? He gives this test to the lawyer. He says, who acted more neighborly? Who showed mercy towards the man who was robbed? Who's the one who acts neighborly? Do you act as do you act as a neighbor to the person who needs your help? And Jesus and the man says, the Samaritan, the, the last one, the last, the last man. And he's, Jesus says, go and do the same. I don't want necessarily, as a kind of a tale to this, say say go and do likewise, love your neighbor. I I think that's kind of a moralistic application. Go and do the same. The problem is is. By what power or ability can I go and love my neighbor? What is chains inside the lawyer's heart or soul? Has eternal life been obtained? We don't know, right? We don't know if this man obtained eternal life. Because the answer to the question is, if he continues to follow the law and rely on the law for eternal life, he will not get eternal life. If he goes off and says, well, I'm just going to love my neighbor as myself, that will not obtain eternal life. For him. I think the bigger issue here is that what Jesus is trying to answer for us is that the true and better answer is that Christ Jesus is the one who binds our wounds as we lay in the ditch in our own transgressions. He is the good neighbor who is a friend to sinners, a friend to the ungodly, right? Romans 5, 6, or 8. He loved the ungodly, right? He died for the ungodly. We were enemies of God, but yet Christ Jesus died for our sins. Roman, Isaiah 53 talks about how Jesus was the despised. No former majesty, no beauty. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, a one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and was esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief, carried our sorrows, made intercession for our transgressions. The unexpected Savior, Jesus Christ, despised by men, was the carpenter from Nazareth who saved us. What saves us is not what we expect will save us. The law won't save us. Religious practices won't save us. Virtuous living, moralism, good deeds, being a good person won't save you. Political correctness won't save you. Wealth and status won't save you. They're all insufficient at healing your wounds. They're insufficient at carrying you to safety. They're like the priest and the Levite. They have nothing to offer. Humanity continues to trust and hope in insufficient things to save them for their sinful condition. The despised one will save them. The one that no one wants to hear. You, you know this in the situation, right? You're in a party. You're at a party, and uh, someone finds out you're a Christian. And the room's energy just drops, right? Oh, no. Here comes Jesus, right? I mean, like, Jesus like, just kind of, like, creates that awkwardness. Because Jesus is the despised one, right? I mean, he was always despised. But he will carry your burden. 
He has paid for all your iniquities. Now we were on, we've been on campus the last few weeks, me and Denton. We passed out coffee on Tuesday, some of y'all know this. And we started asking students questions, right? We had this question on the, one of the A-frame boards. And the one we've been using the last two weeks is, Kanye West a Christian, or is he doing it for publicity? And I'll be honest, we've gotten more answers of, oh yeah, he's doing it for publicity. No way he's a Christian. And we say, well, why do you think that? Well, because Kanye's all about himself. I mean, he's all about himself. He, he, the things he's done, the things he's said in his past, there's no way he could be a Christian. And I think what, what's happening here is that people' expectations is, is that you're saved by what? Your moralism. You're saved by your good deeds. Not by the blood of Christ. Why would Christ save him? He's trash. We hear girls say, he's trash. Only about himself. Yeah, in Conway, Kanye West's new album, Jesus is King, he sings lyrics like, He saved a rich like me, and I know God is the force that picked me up. He calls himself a, a wretch like me. He, he, Kanye recognizes that he was a sinner, and he has made mistakes in his past. He's not justifying his actions. What must I do to be saved from my transgressions? Kanye, Kanye West says that some of you in this room have said, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is repent and be baptized. Repent and put your faith in Christ. God does not cancel us even though he is able and worthy to do so. The Apostle Peter wrote, God is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he is patient with us, not wishing that anyone would perish, but that all should reach repentance. <laughs> In a world that we live in, when you are you're 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 judged by your moralism actions, your moralistic actions, your ethics, your good deeds, there is no hope for you. But in a world like that, God's grace is magnified. It's magnified. In a social media world, you can't hide from your mistakes. Pictures, videos, posts are a public record. Your past will haunt you, and the world's ready to declare you guilty without any hope of redemption. However, God through his eternal son, Jesus Christ, offers redemption to the worst of us. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cover all your transgressions and restore us through himself. Do you recognize that you're wretched? Do you recognize that you're a sinner? Do you recognize that you're in a hopeless situation? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, a cancel sentence on, on all of us for our transgressions to a holy God. And in Christ, redemption from our sentence is given to all who would believe in Christ Jesus. We should all scream hallelujah for he saved a rich like me. We are all similar to the man who was robbed, laying in a ditch, left to die, but Christ saved you, right? Some of y'all know that. Y'all can talk about how you were left to die. That you are totally pushed away. That you are canceled. That person's never going to be a good person. Get them away from me. And yet Christ saved you. He redeemed you. And some of you think, well, I'm not that guy. right? I've not done anything wrong. I, I, you're basically justifying yourself. And really what you are is you're no different. You're laying, abandoned, beaten by your transgressions and your sins. And Christ Jesus offers healing and grace. And the, and the question is, are you going to continue to justify yourself? Or are you going to cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner, 
in need of redemption and grace. Let's pray. And Lord, I pray for the people here, Lord, that they would recognize where they are 